0: hello everyone this is ricky hi it's charmine did you know that june is pride month and for pride month every single episode we're bringing you is very special
1: Yes, we are so excited for the month of June because all of our episodes this month will feature academics, artists, and activists from the LGBTQIA plus community. So be sure to stay tuned for this month to um, listen to very important conversations from these outstanding individuals. Um, So stay tuned. We hope you enjoy.
0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to Gray Matters. This is Charmaine, and this is the first installment of our episodes um,
1: specifically for Pride Month. So, welcome. Yes. Hello, everyone. This is Ricky, and our, as Charmaine said, this is. One of our first episodes um, that we are featuring during Pride Month, and for this episode, we're going to talk about compromising identity, and we are so excited because we have a very special, amazing, wonderful um, guest, um, Sarah, Sarah Uh Abu-Ajazzar, yes, (laughs) <laughs> Sorry if I butchered your name, I practiced oh, you this three times. Okay, yay, I got it. Um, so we're so excited to talk to Sarah today. Um, so welcome, Sarah.
2: Yeah, thank you so much. I'm so excited to contribute to this series of episodes. Sounds really exciting.
1: Yeah, so if you want to share with everyone a little bit about yourself, um, for everyone, a little background information, I met Sarah in our um, trans-feminist rhetoric, um, that's been a very... That's been a very interesting class that I've mentioned several times on the podcast. It's a trans feminist rhetoric course um, at TWU, which we both attend. And that's where I met Sarah. And after hearing um, their presentation about, um, about their, I'll let them talk about it more. But after hearing their presentation, I was like, oh, Sarah must come on the podcast. Not must, there was no force, (laughs) but I just reached out to Sarah to come on the podcast to talk about their research and talk a little bit more about who they are because they're just so amazing. And I can't wait for Sarah to share with everyone about how amazing you are.
2: That's so sweet of you, I
1: appreciate
2: it. Um, Yeah, so uh, I'm Sarah. I am a grad student at TWU, Texas Women's University. Um, And yeah, that was an amazing class that Ricky and I both got to kind of share our experiences and converse and my presentation or my research was over narrating the trans identity, uh, how that may pop up and just the lives of any person, no matter um, what their gender identity uh, may or may not be, that we all kind of narrate who we are and that affects trans people and um, their visibility and so on and so forth. Um, And yeah, uh, that's a lot of it came from my own experiences as a trans woman and dealing with how I present uh, very masculine, um, the way that I am now. And also coming from a more conservative background also. um, And how narrating, uh, for example, who I give my dead name to versus my um, real name to uh, versus, you know, who, who, which, which name is my parents are going to say if I put my Twitter as my dead name or not, you know, things like that. Um, and that's what my research was all about. Just narrating who you are. Um, and yeah.
0: Well, thank you for, for sharing that. Like I, I, um, had the privilege and the wonderful opportunity to also view your, um, presentation. And it really, I really appreciate you sharing your personal perspective and your story because, um, and kind of narrating your own experience. Um, I think that it's, it's extremely valuable that especially for non-trans people to kind of have this, I I don't want to say like the responsibility is not on trans people to share their identity. So I want to preface it with that, but it's like, I think it's very important for for non-trans people to give trans people the space to express their own identity and talk about these issues and really um, to just be themselves and be, you know, be able to share their experiences. Um, I think often there's this very kind of binary way of thinking that limits how we have these conversations. So um, I know one of the things that we talked about uh, kind of previously, and Ricky and I have discussed this throughout the podcast, is like um, looking at this compromise within heteronormative binaries and hierarchies that trans bodies exist within. They're kind of forced to fit in these heteronormative spaces. And that was one of the important things for, for us to talk about, especially during this month and kind of not necessarily talk about but bring awareness to and give space to um as to being able to dismantle these binaries and these heart hierarchies um and really look at how heteronormative our spaces are and why that's so problematic
2: yeah, yeah thank you um and uh i totally agree that it's not it shouldn't be the responsibility um of all trans people to narrate or, uh, you know, uh, take on this responsibility. But I, I find that personally, um, it helps a lot in my own personal journey to kind of openly converse about these major issues um, that kind of surround, surround us as a community and also surrounds us personally and within all these different spaces in our, in our lives. And on the topic of heteronormative spaces, I mean, that's, it's such an interesting topic because I feel like the idea of a heteronormative space is in a lot of ways dealing with its own narrative. I don't know if, any of you would have any thoughts on that, but uh, I always think about our heteronormative spaces always, have they always been there, right? Um, Have there been situations of um, places of, uh, or spaces of more equality um, throughout history and uh, things like that? I don't know. I'm, that's just stuff that's been on my mind lately.
1: Yeah, yeah. I actually just recently had a conversation um, with a couple of friends about how a lot of our binary um, frame frameworks, right, that we live by, and um, specifically talking about heteronormative binaries, are are kind of res- residual effects, or I don't even know the right word, language sometimes, right? But they're like residual effects from colonization and um, imperialism. And, um, and a lot of a lot of times I feel like we don't sit down and think about that, right? Because heteronormative spaces have become, like we said, the norm, it's been so normalized. And a lot of times people feel that dismantling you know heteronormative spaces are is like a new radical like ideology you know kind of like um, more inclusive spaces have never existed before but if you actually do the research and to anybody out there listening and doing the research let us know i would love to have this conversation um, i only know from like um, certain research that I have written, I think I, uh, not written, have read, excuse me, um, is specifically focusing on like indigenous culture and practices. More inclusive spaces did exist throughout Mm -hmm. history, you know, and it's, it's because of colonization and because of kind of um, the eradication, eradication, I can't speak today, I don't know why, of um, kind of I, ideology that went against kind of the uh, Eurocentric, heteronormative kind of mindset. It's through that eradication that was purposefully done, right? That we now have these wide, like global spaces that kind of reproduce heteronormative um, thought and ideology. I don't yeah. know.
0: <laughs> No, I think that's so valid. And I think that, um, thank you, Sarah, for bringing in that conversation. And I agree with you, Ricky. I think that um, from a lot of the research that I've done as well, that's definitely been, um, that's been the case. And I think that the way that we look at like our, in quotes, like modern world or like the world that we know it in the spaces that we exist in are largely influenced by like this, you know, the modern um, structures. So those are like most recently- capitalism, heteronormativity, influenced by imperialism and colonialism. And that has erased indigenous and non, and and basically indigenous spaces, but also any kind of like framework that challenges our world as we know it now. Um, And unfortunately that continues to be reproduced. So yeah, I think it's really important to have these conversations and think about it's often like, oh, these revolutionary spaces, but yes, they're revolutionary in some aspects, but in some other cases, they have existed for a long time and we just need to reincorporate them again. Yeah,
2: I, I, I totally agree. And I think I think the topic of indigenous peoples is um, such an interesting thing to bring up. I, I was, um, I feel like a, a lot of my own identity, uh, uh, much of its conflict has been something that, as I've been doing more uh, research, um, I've been realizing I, I've been realizing that it's been affected by colonialism and this kind of exertion of um, po- politics on social structures and uh, spiritual uh, spiritual and cultural, structures of indigenous peoples that can be so critical for um, queer people, because we so often see that when a culture originates organically, is not affected by these experiences or traumatic experiences such as war or so on and so forth that seems to contribute so heavily to um, a lack of social progress. We see these cultures when they when they they flourish with this idea and acceptance of queer people, and um, I have to deal with my own identity as a Muslim Muslim trans woman, right? Um, I am from all my genes are spread out all over the Middle East, you know, and um, I've been doing a lot of research into how. Uh, the trans narrative has been affected or interacted with um, by the uh, spread and uh, inception of um, Islam. And it was a very queer forward space and it it was very accepting of um, these trans identities. Um, Of course it was in its uh, own way accepting and with its own labels and It doesn't necessarily fit into our own perception of gender today, Uh, but for what it was, it was a very queer accepting space. Mm -hmm. And then of course we see these effects of colonialism um, in the Middle Eastern region. And that's where we see the most severe dip in the lives of queer people um, in the Middle East. And um, so now me uh, just being born as a Muslim person, I'm forced into these extremely heteronormative religious bases that I don't personally feel correlate with my own faith as a Muslim person. Um, But these are just the incredible, just I'm not. I'm. I'm. I'm looking for the. Wor- what's the. What's the word for the snake where you cut one and like the two heads pop out. You know, it's that kind of beast, the Hydra or whatever. Yeah. Um. I... Yes. Sorry.
0: No. Go ahead, please finish. Or oh continue. no! I was just
2: saying that it's <laughs> it's it's a uh, it's a similar beast. Um, colonialism is.
0: Oh, I, I just I love that so much, and so much of my own work like connects to post like colonization and the impacts of colonialism on post-colonized people. And um, as much as I hate that like kind of designation, um, I really appreciate you sharing that. And um, yeah, I think like you know so much of this also connects to language, and like I know we brought that up like already in this conversation, and we have a whole episode on it. We talk about it a lot, but it's like the like like I've been thinking about language in a few different ways and specifically to what you were saying Sarah like it's like the way that we like you said it like there were like queer inclusive spaces and they had their own labels and in many ways they were binary but it doesn't fit into like our like the way that we talk about it especially like in English like I'm just using like English as like a colonizer language and so even when we sometimes like have these discussions it's they're quite limit limited slash limiting with the language because it's like the language that we use today may not necessarily correlate or or in any way like overlap or have like a significance to the language that was used. But um, I, I I appreciate you you bringing that because I have done um, some research and I continue to engage in a lot of research um, on queer folk in uh, South Asia and the Middle East and um, there are whole communities of queer and transgender people within South Asia that this is a really fascinating um, community to me, but just like as someone who's studying them, but also just who has like for these people to exist in these communities, right? They're not just, I think sometimes academia looks at everybody as just like, A study or like something to study. And definitely these are like thriving communities and they've continued to exist within these spaces that colonization has literally taken and ravaged. And so, but at the same time, it's like how we talk about them today. Oftentimes when, um, we hear about like conversations around like queer people in the Middle East and South Asia, especially in like Muslim predominant nations. It's through like a very Western heteronormative framework. And I think that there is like a neoliberalist perspective, which is like, oh, these are what these countries need to do in order to be more inclusive. And absolutely, like the governments and the countries have a long way to go in order to be more inclusive. Um, and especially in like the terms of like gay rights. Um and rights for, for people from within the LGBTQIA plus communities, but also at the same hand, it like that kind of neoliberalist notion completely does not take into account the very deep-rooted histories that these places and these communities have. So I don't know. It's just, I really do appreciate you bringing that up because it's like, it's it's like no easy way to talk about it. And there's not even like going towards a solution, but there's like, the way that we talk about these conversations, I think, has so much nuance that is often overlooked.
2: And such an important thing is just recognizing these effects, yeah. Also, which is what makes this kind of conversation so important.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Oh, we both said yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, sorry, I'm just, I'm, I'm having a lot of. Um, thoughts come to my brain at once uh, about this conversation because I think, I think it's an important conversation that needs to be continuously had and I'm thinking about in regards to which we talk about this on our, we've talked about this before and and what we call um, activism for clout and activating your activism um, because I think in order to be a um, what's the right word impactful, are um, intentional. I'll use intentional. In order to you, be like a intentional ally, I feel like it, it, it takes um, it takes. Of course, it takes work, right? So it's it's more than just you know. I, I've been seeing all of these videos about how stores just like Commodify Pride Month, right? And you see rainbow flags and people are buying, 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 buying. And I feel like it takes more than just buying in order to dismantle these spaces, right? And kind of um, create spaces or recreate, I should say. Because when you say create, I feel like people think, oh, this is such a radical, and they disconnect it from the fact that the reason why the spaces are the way they are is because colonization. It's not like we've had these spaces. It's not like we've had binary language and heteronormative language and spaces throughout the entire history of like mankind, right? It's that these spaces were purposefully created to marginalize certain groups and people and to serve a certain agenda. And I feel like in order to create these spaces we need to like i'm thinking like plug-in like plug like people need to plug in to this to this fact i'm not even gonna say idea i'm gonna say it's a fact i know it's gonna be kind of like probably pushing some buttons but it's a fact that these spaces are are from like heteronormative spaces right heteronormative culture heteronormative environments right are from um the Western world and Eurocentric and all all of those things we've talked about before are from their agenda to colonize the world, right? And to set a certain agenda that kind of um, silences certain people who who don't fall on their certain, um, in uh, in their certain... um, outlook of what a person should be, right? Um, People who are, who they deem as like, I don't know, um, what was the word that they used to, uncivilized, right? Or uh, or not um, meeting up to their standards. And I think that there is a disconnect. I feel like people do have this disconnect and this disconnect is connected to, it's kind of like what you described, Sarah, like you cut off the head and two heads and I think cutting off two heads and four heads show up. Like the reason why those heads keep showing up is because I feel like there is this huge disconnect out there. And until people connect into this fact, there will continue to be a disconnect and people will continue to have performative allyship and have, um and have like I don't know, I think of empty, like empty actions towards dismantling this system that is detrimental to a lot of us um in the world. Those are just my random thoughts that I had.
2: No, I I mean I, I totally agree with what you're saying and um it's, it's definitely a very interesting um, issue to look at from the perspective of a trans woman myself. Um, it's, it's one that I feel that I'm very obligated to look at just out of a personal obligation um, because you you feel that you have such a personal connection and you become very involved in trans culture or these trans histories and such and such. And you feel that um, you really do need, that it's a necessity, um, this allyship um, from people who do not share your identity but have an understanding or a uh, compassion for it. Um, And it's definitely something difficult. And it's also very, it's very, it's very, um, it's a very limiting type of obligation also, because it's not necessarily something that I can do myself as a trans woman because it's so important when talking about colonialism um, and these effects of it to have the allyship of these people who are not not at their own fault whatsoever, but because of the society that they inhabit and the structures and um, institutions that they take part in are more permeating or uh, spreading these effects of colonialism and it's so important of of um of these people to have that uh have that allyship because I think it's such a forceful um such a forceful um vehicle of effect.
0: yeah I I I really appreciate you bringing in allyship because I think that's there is this necessity for allyship. And like you said, Ricky, non-performative allyship. And also like, I think solidarity, like I, I'm, I extend this by talking about solidarity. Um, because I think that that is when you have true solidarity, It functions on non-performative allyship, not ally for clout or for personal recognition, but for true solidarity. And I think that is when really, I don't think it's, it's obviously linear, but, um, I think that there's a level of solidarity that's necessary for dismantling like hegemonic structures and, and incorporating inclusivity within spaces. Um, and I, I think a big part of that is like people who identify outside of the LGBTQIA communities to take responsibility to uh, contribute towards non-performative allyship and to build solidarity. Thanks for listening. We appreciate your support. You can continue to show your support by giving the podcast five stars and by following us on our website, graymatterstheblog.com, that's gray with an A, and on Instagram, as well as sharing and commenting on
1: our posts on at graymatterstheblog. We want to connect with our Gray Matters community. That's you, our listeners. So if you have a comment or inquiry about customizable trainings and workshops, email us at blog at gmail.com. Stay safe, everyone, and we will chat with you next week.